For the last several months, Brownie, Wendy, and I have become Netflix series fans. We sometimes start watching a new series, and then, usually about dinner time or so, we will binge watch multiple episodes, depending on our availability, of course. This kind of a home theater entertainment interest developed as a, as a result of sheltering at home, I'm pretty sure. Most of the Netflix episodes begin with something like previously on and then fill in the name of the show. This is where they show 30 seconds of clips from the last episode. So prior to the current episode, the one we're about to watch, before that one begins, the viewer is quickly caught up with what's going on in the storyline. Sometimes, the very next thing seen by a viewer might be a sneak peek at what's coming soon in subsequent shows. In fact, I saw a Netflix recent series here not all that long ago that constantly, I'm talking about every episode, it went back and forth on the timeline attempting to make sense of some things. You might say it was their way of helping the viewer logically piece together what had already happened simply by providing a snapshot of the unfolding plot, preparing the viewer for what was about to take place. Okay, all this talk about TV series and Netflix, why? It's simple. That said, the progression or the retracing of scenes and segments in a storyline is very pertinent to our message this, this week as we look closely at one single segment in the latter part of the Palm Sunday reading for next weekend. Today's snapshot or scene is a critical part of the Passion Palm storyline, and this part of the story often goes untouched and untold until today. Our reading is from Luke's Gospel account, the 19th chapter, and we're going to pick up this story at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and he saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were selling things there. And, and he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound. By what they heard. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God is our response. You know, I love the fact that we have at least four biblical accounts 
of the way Jesus did things in his life, especially when we consider the evangelist's writings about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that infamous day. It's a day that we in the church often referred to as Palm Sunday. Picture for a moment. Jesus has already rode into Jerusalem where the pilgrims are lining the roadway. They're waving their branches and singing their praises to the one, to the one, they certainly hope has a solid and effective plan to deliver them from the iron fists of Roman occupation. Now we'll take a much closer look at that part of the story next week. But back to today's reading. By now, the somewhat brief parade through the city gates and through the streets has reached its conclusion. Or so we think. Sit back, grab a handful of buttered popcorn, flip up the footrest on your recliner, and watch, because now is when the plot really thickens. And you thought the story was over? No way! The Gospel of Luke alone has Jesus referring to the stones scattered on the dusty ground in Jerusalem that day. As he, metaphorically speaking, points to those stones as exuberant pilgrims, poised to shout their praises to God, indicating that these dull and dead stones, supposedly, are already fully alive to the new life Jesus offers to all those who believe in him. I think this is Luke's clever way of having Jesus say to all the authorities, you better take this seriously because there's no way you can stop what God is doing today. Let me read this to you again. According to Luke, this is what he says. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Now, although the Roman soldiers are present, on the Jerusalem road that day, supposedly to keep the peace during this no doubt minor disturbance. The church leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the scribes, on this very same occasion, wish only to kill him, thus eliminating Jesus as a very major threat to their security. Yes, they were convinced Jesus posed a formidable threat and they knew it. Luke's gospel account of this event is an especially vivid juxtaposition of the ways in which people either gleefully and joyfully welcome Jesus, or they forcefully and decidedly push him over the cliff, silencing him, eliminating him, hoping he'll never, ever return. The gospel of Matthew the 21st chapter, says something similar, but Matthew throws a twist into this story. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Sounds a lot like Luke, doesn't it? But Matthew continues, 
the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Well, I think it's curious. In the face of jealous indignation from the church leaders because of, quote, the wonderful things he did, and without specifically naming Luke's reference to the stones poised to shout out praises to God, the gospel writer Matthew has Jesus choosing to quote Psalm 8, where God has already placed within children and infants a heart ready, prepared to readily and willingly claim this same Jesus, this Jesus that others despise as their blessed Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. Even though a lot of ink has been spilled on the subject of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day, there's usually not a whole lot said about the immensely glaring fact, most notably in the Gospels of Luke and John, that Jesus of Nazareth posed a formidable threat to a life of control and comfort for the elite, and he had swiftly risen to the number one spot on the most wanted criminals list. Preacher and teacher alike usually focus their creative thoughts on the scene that day of the excited crowd lining the road, the branches being raised triumphantly, and maybe the laying down of cloaks on the road. Probably, first place in the retelling of this story usually goes to the type of animal Jesus is riding, indicating for many Jesus' style and method of holy, humble servant leadership. And although although these observations I just mentioned, they're on the mark, don't get me wrong, they're on the mark. They have a way of sitting on the surface, masking what I believe to be the most important aspect of this powerful episode. And here it is. Number one. The Roman soldiers are clueless, slightly irked, but not bothered much at all by the annoying peasants doing their silly religious things. They were just being a nuisance, as usual. Nope, there was nothing new under the sun in Jerusalem that day. Yup, for the Roman guard, it was just another day at the office. The church leaders, however, go back and read those gospel texts again. The church leaders see the unfolding events much differently, though. By this time, they have already decided Jesus of Nazareth is soon to be one dead hombre. The prejudiced jury of very proud religious leaders, they've finally seen enough. The evidence is overwhelming. They finally have what they need to convict the delusional country boy turned self-elected messiah. The decision is made. All they need to do is call a charge conference and make it official. This guy is going down. But why? Simple. Jesus was, without a question, a major threat 
to their way of life. Well, what was the charge? What did he do? What law did he break? Simple. Jesus was robbing the church leaders of their beloved constituency. Friends, Jesus was stealing sheep. The writing was on the wall. If the peasants and the simple-minded pilgrims gave their worship to Jesus and all the wonderful things that he does for them, they would no longer pay the temple tax. They would no longer kowtow to the Pharisees, and they would quit following all the rules. In fact, they would no longer respond favorably toward an annual finance campaign. Jesus was causing nothing less than a revolution. You know, I can see the pilgrims now arranging the scattered palm branches on the Jerusalem road into words saying, quote, Our lives matter! And while Jesus and his motley crew were not enough to scare the Roman military might, the church leaders of the day knew better. In fact, I think, given the chance to rearrange those same palm branches, spelling out their own thoughts in Jerusalem that day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law's version of road graffiti would have said, Stop the steal! Yes, they were convinced. The church leaders were convinced, and they knew it. If this unrest was allowed to continue, Jesus of Nazareth would cost them comfort. He would cost them control and compensation. Indeed, if Jesus were to get his way with his rescue plan, their hoped-for retirement parties, their swelling pension checks, and their well-earned Mediterranean beachfront condos would evaporate, forcing them into a miserable life of existing on food stamps, sleeping in alleys, and emptying their fat wallets just so that they could provide for the needs of the people they most used, abused, and despised. And those, my friends, were and still are fighting words. There's no question, like a wild fire burning out of control, Jesus was without a doubt a threat that must be extinguished. That being said, I'm inviting you today. I'm inviting you now, especially during your prayer time, maybe during some quiet afternoon time. Take a quick pre-Holy Week trip through John's Gospel. Make note of the of the way the perception of Jesus moves early on from mystery to curiosity to wonder to joy to concern and eventually to persecution because of his alleged disrespect for the church rules of his day. But friends, it doesn't stop there. As the story unfolds, the plot thickens, as thoughts of suspicion lead eventually to anger, indignation, and finally to a death sentence. The plan for his painful execution clearly results from the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is a formidable threat who must be eliminated. He must die 
and the sooner, the better. So when you consider something that is quite obviously a threat to you in some way, how do you typically react? Do you step back? Maybe you carefully weigh your options. Do you look around to see who's watching? Does your conscience, your heart, say things to you that maybe you'd rather just avoid? Or when threatened, do you possibly raise your fisticuffs, dig in your heels, and defend your turf? Our dog Brownie is a really good example of reacting to a perceived threat. Brownie is not a mean or an aggressive dog. But boy, does that little guy really know how to protect things he considers to be his turf. I remember a time Wendy and I were sitting on the back patio. It was a late afternoon and we were just relaxing in our patio chairs, having a snack. And we noticed Brownie kind of jumping up and down, kind of like a deer. And he was running back and forth in the backyard, trying to see what was happening in the alley behind the house. He was trying to kind of jump up and look over the fence. He was alerted. He was obviously excited. And obviously, he felt threatened. What happened? Well, there's a certain area along the backyard fence just across from another guy's backyard. Every once in a while, a panel truck will pull up in the alley, stop, and these guys will open a back fence gate. Not ours. I'm talking about the other guy's gate. And you can see the tops of their heads kind of moving around. And you can hear their voices as they load stuff into the back of the truck. It's usually car parts and other kind of stuff and things like that. That they go in this guy's backyard and they bring out and put in the back of the truck, like I said. Either way, what was happening that afternoon in the alley was somewhat unusual behavior. Both for what happens in the alley on a regular basis and for our dog, Brownie. Indeed, keeping in mind that it's usually pretty quiet in our backyard and it's usually pretty quiet in the alley, Brownie was obviously threatened by all the unusual activity. And his reaction to being threatened, what was it? It was to dig in, take a stand, and sort of put up his dukes, or you might say, put up his paws, and defend his family. Clearly, the peace, comfort, and tranquility of our backyard leisure time was being threatened. Our comfort and safety were clearly at risk, according to Browning. So there it is, my friends. A very simple 2,000-year-old story and a harmless, cute adventure about A beautiful brown little dog bouncing around in the backyard. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Oh, that is very wrong. And I'm telling you why it's wrong. Jesus remains a major threat in your life today. Let me say it again. Jesus remains as a major threat in your life today. Honestly, ask yourself, what are the threats to your desired way of life these days? In what way might Jesus and his teachings be contributing to those things that threaten you and get in your face? In other words, in what way or ways does Jesus cramp your style? I mean, can you 
honestly say that Jesus, yes, Jesus, and what he demands of you never, has never put your comfort, safety, and personal space at risk? Can you say that Jesus and what he teaches you and what he demands from you never, ever has put your comfort, safety, and personal space and your ways of desired living that's never been at risk? Can you honestly say that that's never threatened you? Think about it. Struggling with these questions are important because metaphorically speaking, my friends, we are pulling on to the on-ramp to Holy Week where the challenges to the life Jesus clearly demands of us becomes more real and becomes more palpable. And we just might find ourselves wishing Jesus would get back on his donkey, pick up his holier-than-thou habits and demands, and quietly ride out of our life experience, pushing his agenda of justice and mercy on somebody else. Thank you very much. Finally, I'm here to tell you, and I confess, Jesus threatens me. Jesus threatens me a lot. Jesus threatens my comfort almost daily. Jesus threatens my pocketbook all too often. Jesus threatens my compromising moral compass, especially when faced with caring for the undesirable, those undesirable aliens who do not deserve to be in my county, let alone my country. Jesus and his mission of fairness, justice, equality, hope, love, grace, and care, and forgiveness for all, all those people. It threatens me a lot because Jesus demands of me things I don't want to do. Indeed, there are many days, my friends, that I cannot wait to be near Jesus. I can't wait to be just like him in every way until it turns ugly and until it turns very uncomfortable. And those are the days I want him to just leave me alone and push his holy agenda on somebody else. Yeah, those are the days I would much rather avoid why Jesus threatens me. Don't get me wrong. I really love Jesus, but I hate it when he threatens me. I hate it when what Jesus demands of me robs me of comfort and my well-earned leisure time. Don't threaten me, Jesus. Who do you think you are? By the way, don't think for a moment that you are off the hook here. You don't have a choice but to own up to why Jesus threatens you. Just saying.